Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Louise Mirror, the person who has the pleasure of being president and CEO of this great institution. And it really, thank you. <laughs> it really is um, a great pleasure for me to see all of you, um, despite the uh, not as inclement weather as we've had, but still rather icy. And I'm delighted to see so many of you in our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium. Um, I want to make sure that those of you who have not already visited our Armory Show at 100 uh, take the chance to do so over the next few weeks. The show, which is a reprise of the original 1913 Armory Show that introduced modern art to New York, closes uh, later on this month on February 23rd. Um, and I also, as always, want to uh, invite those of you who are not yet members of the New York Historical Society to join. There are wonderful benefits throughout the museum, and of course, you get the, um, the joy, above all, of supporting the great work of this great institution. Today's program, Foreign Policy with David Sanger and Richard Haas, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series, uh, which, of course, is the heart of our public programs. As always, I would like to thank Mr. and Mrs. Schwartz for their great support, which has enabled us to bring so many fine historians and writers to the society. Thank you so much. Bernard is with us this evening. Tonight's, uh, the pro tonight's program will uh, last about an hour, and it will include a question and answer session. Audience members will be invited to approach two standing microphones to my left and to my right which will be set up in the aisles. We ask that you do this so that the speakers on the stage can hear your questions and so that members of the audience can hear your questions as well. Um, following the program, books by our speakers will be available in our museum shop. Uh, there will, however, be no book signing this evening. Before I introduce our speakers, I do want to recognize um, some uh, wonderful additional wonderful people in our audience, two members of our Board of Trustees who are with us this evening, Mr. Richard Reese and Mr. Lon Jacobs, and thank them for all that they do on behalf of this institution. Thank you. We are really thrilled to welcome David E. Sanger back to the New York Historical Society. Mr. Sanger is National Security Correspondent at the New York Times. In his 28-year career at the paper, Mr. Sanger has covered a wide variety of issues surrounding foreign policy, globalization, Asian affairs, and nuclear proliferation. Twice, he's been a member of Times reporting teams that won the Pulitzer Prize. Mr. Sanger is also a senior fellow at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs and adjunct lecturer in public policy at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. He's the author of The Inheritance, The World Obama Confronts, and The Challenges to American power, and most recently, confront and conceal Obama's secret wars and surprising use of American power. We are also absolutely delighted to welcome back Richard N. Haas, our moderator for the evening. He is the president of the Council on Foreign Relations, a position he's held since 2003. He's the former director of policy planning for the Department of State, where he was a principal advisor to Secretary of State Colin Powell. He's a recipient of the State Department's Distinguished Honor Award and the Presidential Citizens Medal. He's also been a special assistant to President George H.W. Bush and senior director 
for Near East and South Asian Affairs on the staff of the National Security Council. He's the author or editor of 11 books on American foreign policy, including his most recent, Foreign Policy Begins at Home, The Case for Putting America's House in Order. And now, as we welcome our speakers to the stage, please make sure that anything that makes a noise is switched off. Thank you. Actually, I was disappointed to hear that we wouldn't be signing books because I was prepared to sign all of David's books. Uh, <laughs> value, uh, I'm not sure we'll decide which way the value would have gone. Uh, it's a treat to be here with David. He is a journalist, but that doesn't quite do him justice. Uh, this, you know, the articles he writes in the paper and then the books he writes uh, are an important, uh, not just chronicling, but also analysis of the foreign policy and national security policy uh, of, the, of the United States. Uh, what we're gonna do tonight is have something of a uh, conversation. So I will uh, ask David questions and then he'll I'll probably throw a few back at me. So the, the lines between uh, moderator and moderate uh, will, be, uh, will be blurred. We won't filibuster, we'll save some time. Uh, for your questions as well, and what we'll do is scoot around the world because there's no shortage of uh, stuff to talk about, to use the technical phrase. Uh, so let's start with the, uh, David, with the part of the world that seems to be getting the most attention, which is the uh, Middle East. But let me uh, ask you the question, should it get the most attention? Uh, the Secretary of State is spending the lion's share of his waking hours there. He's, and I, I've lost count of how many trips he's, he's made there. And from where you sit, given your take on the entire planet, uh, how we right-sized American foreign policy with this uh, focus on uh, what's going on in the Middle East, or uh, have we oversized it? Well, thanks, Richard, and thank you for uh, coming out. As you all know, um, Richard, uh, through the council and through his work before that, uh, really helps define and describe the challenges that we are um, faced with. And I actually, I miss having him in government because it was fun to go over to his office and we would compare the things that we saw most screwed up in the government in any given day. Um, For the record, I was not a source. No, uh, we, we actually, <laughs> we, we never met. Um, <laughs> Just want to clarify. Yeah. That. It's also great to be back here at the Historical Society, and I want to particularly thank my parents, Joan and Ken Sanger, who grew up in the neighborhood for uh, coming tonight and listening to their um, son drone on and things that they've um, heard many times before, I'm sure. Um, Richard, you asked the right question because um, if you listened to what the Obama administration said when they came in in 2009, their mantra was that the United States had overinvested in the Middle East over the past um, several decades and underinvested in Asia, a place where American leadership was uh, still desired more than it was certainly in the Middle East, a place where American economic opportunity was so much greater, uh, and a place where the management of the rise of China called out for uh, particularly uh, deep attention. And in fact, the president sort of headed off that way when he announced the pivot to Asia. And one would have thought 
that given the fact that we are uh, moving to a position, thanks to fracking and, and other events here, to greater energy independence from the Middle East, they actually had the excuse, if not the opportunity, to move away more. But the world didn't work out that way. Uh, as they ranked their um, most immediate and urgent threats, uh, Iran, Syria, the blow up in Egypt, uh, something which I think they had great hopes in 2011 would turn one way uh, and instead has turned another, have really occupied their attention to the degree that when the president gave his State of the Union address uh, a week ago, he barely mentioned Asia and then only to discuss uh, relief work in the Philippines. Uh, I thought that that really indicated the degree to which the priorities have sort of shifted from 2009 forward. It's a very good question about Secretary Kerry. On the one hand, you could argue that the administration did far too little on the Israeli-Palestinian issues in the first term, uh, and uh, that on Syria, they sort of got off on the wrong foot and have never gotten back in the right place. And I'm sure we'll talk about that some more in, in coming minutes. Um, but if you took the president's first priorities, which was Asia first, then the Middle East, and think that in the Middle East, you sort of would rank the problem keeping Iran from getting a nuclear weapon, dealing with Syria, dealing with Egypt, and then the Israeli-Palestinian issue, you might say that the secretary has spent a preponderance of his time on the number three or four problem in the number two area of the world for them. You might say that. <laughs> uh, so let's go through them in ranked order, which is uh, Iran. Uh, just to set the stage, we've had this uh, interim agreement announced. The implementation of the interim agreement uh, has essentially uh, begun. So there, there's two big questions. One is, will this agreement be implemented as intended? And second of all, by definition, an interim agreement is not meant to last. It's meant to deal with some issues and buy time for the so-called comprehensive agreement to follow. So what's your, what's your take on both? What's your, if you had your crystal ball, uh, one is how do you see implementation going of the interim agreement? What's your sense of that? And second of all, do you think that this leads to a, a comprehensive agreement? Well, so far the implementation has not been bad, but we're in early weeks yet. This interim agreement is certainly better than where we were a year ago when the Iranians were still adding on, or even months ago, when they were still adding on centrifuges, they were enriching uranium. Their, um, the increase in Iranian capacity during the Obama administration has been quite stark. You don't hear these numbers often from the administration, but when President Obama was inaugurated, the Iranians had enough fuel for, with additional enrichment, to make probably one bomb, maybe two. They're at the point right now where they could make seven or eight with additional enrichment. So freezing them right where they are is a very good thing. The risk that the administration runs right now is, I think, the risk that these negotiations to actually get the Iranians to roll back from where they were in uh, uh, back basically to where they were when, when the president took office or earlier is going to be an extremely difficult one. It, it requires... Isn't it really impossible? Well, it's impossible if the 
if the Iranian Revolutionary Guard does not want to give up its investment of billions of dollars in a program that they think is critical, not only to establish themselves as the greatest power in the Middle East, but also establish themselves versus the Israelis and the Saudis. Uh, the Saudis being probably their bigger worry of those, those two right now. But I think that the biggest risk, Richard, is that to get a deal, you actually need three deals. You need a deal between President Obama and with the Europeans and President Rouhani. You need a deal between President Rouhani and those in his own government who do not want to roll back. And you need a deal between President Obama and Congress. And we have seen that, that the president has come perilously close in recent times to Congress passing additional sanctions that probably would have blown up the deal had, had Congress acted. Uh, because the agreement is very clear that there can be no new sanctions imposed while this interim is there. So let me flip the question back to you. Since you dealt with Iran for so many years um, uh, until you left uh, the State Department in 2003, um, of course, at that moment, there was no problem, right? Well, there was a small problem. Uh, but uh, as you have negotiated and dealt with the Iranians over the years, um, how much room do you think they have to back off on a program in which they have put so much of their national prestige? They have uh, more room than they did for two reasons. One is they've built up so much, it's easier to walk some of it back. If you have 18,000 centrifuges, it's easier to slice away some because uh, it gives you, again, things to compromise with. More important, they've got great incentive to walk back because of the economic pressure. I mean, to me, the most interesting moment in Iranian history after the revolution in 79 was when the Ayatollah Khomeini gave that famous speech, and it's when he sued for peace in the Iran-Iraq War in 88, I think it was. And he basically said, this is like drinking a cup of poison to me, but I will do it in order to save the revolution. So the real question is whether the current leadership of Iran, including the current supreme leader, come to the same conclusion, that they have to be willing to make uh, difficult, painful compromises from their point of view in order to, if you will, save the revolution. And that's where the sanctions and the pressure on Iran uh, become important. And my hunch is they might be willing to make some significant compromises. But when I interrupted you before and I said, do you think it's possible, are they going to go down to zero? No. And to me, the really interesting question is, is there some area, which if I had to put it in a, in a bumper sticker, is there enough nuclear capacity to satisfy Iran psychologically and politically, given, what well, I think you're exactly right, their internal negotiation? That's not too much for us, given our, given our internal negotiation with Congress, and in particular our external negotiation with Israel. And can we come up with a, an Iran that's a, it's a Goldilocks approach? And I, and I don't know. And I, in some ways, I think that is the, the interesting question of this negotiation. And Rouhani, uh, the current president of Iran, uh, I've now met with him several times. He's uh, got considerable intellect. I think he has considerable authority, both from um, his standing in the country, from his electoral strength. On the other hand, the other guy has the title supreme leader. Uh, and that tells you something. And so, and that hasn't been tested yet. So you know, the honest answer is I don't know either what, what, what Mr. Rouhani's preferences are. And more important, I don't know what he can sell. I don't, I don't know the dynamics of yet of his 
uh, internal negotiation to use, to use your framing of the issue? You know, Richard, when I think about how we can measure a, um, an agreement, and how do you know when something is announced and whether or not this is real, the measure I use is something that in the nuclear world they refer to as dash time. And that is the amount of time it would take you to dash to build a nuclear weapon if the Iranians made the decision at some point to go do that. And the administration right now will not admit that they will allow any nuclear production underway, but of course they know they will have to. And the question I think is, can you extend that dash time to 18 months or two years, some number where you would have reasonable confidence that the US intel community or the Israelis or someone else, the IAEA, International Atomic Energy Agency, would pick up the evidence that they were running for a bomb and that you'd have enough response time to be able to go do it. Now, on the one hand, 18 months to two years sounds like plenty of time to do that. On the other hand, if you think about our intelligence failures of the past few years, and I'm not even talking about Iraq where we overestimated uh, what their progress was, you'd have to say that our track record has not been that good. We completely missed the Syrian reactor that the North Koreans built and that the Israelis bombed in September of 2007. We completely missed a very large enrichment facility that the North Koreans built and then showed off to a Stanford professor when he came to visit there two years ago. We've missed in the past lots of major steps that the Pakistanis took on their way to the bomb, lots of major steps the Indians took on their way to the bomb, lots of major steps that the Chinese took. And if you think back to when uh, the Soviets exploded their bomb in 1949, it was on a weekend when Harry Truman had a memo on his desk that said they were probably a year away from having a weapon. He wasn't really that impressed. Um, so you have to think that our, our intel on this is pretty imprecise. And that would argue for a longer time period. Okay, since we solved this question, let's yeah. move on to the next one. Uh, and feel better about it, too. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> this isn't water up here. We're drinking vodka. Uh, let's talk about um, Syria. So the administration several years ago said Bashar al-Assad must go. Uh, the last I checked as of what, 6.30 tonight, he hadn't yet gone. Uh, he's still there much more seriously, probably 125, 150,000 Syrians have lost their lives in civil conflict. Uh, probably, what, 5 million have either been made refugees or internally displaced. So this is a, it's, the war is why, this is both a humanitarian and a strategic tragedy of the, of the, the first order. Uh, the principal opposition to Bashar al-Assad right now is a bunch of uh, extremists. Uh, and you could have an interesting, almost philosophical conversation about which is worse, the, the government or the principal alternative to the government. I actually think the principal alternative to the government is likely to, uh, to in fact, be worse. The United States has had a degree of support for the uh, so-called moderate opposition, but the moderate opposition is in distant third place, if you will, as compared to the government uh, and the extremist opposition. So the question then is, uh, what do we do? One is, do we just simply allow things to drift, which is one policy. The second is, could we do things to, make, to move the, the moderate or acceptable opposition? Could we move them up from a distant third place into, say, second place or even first place? Is that an option? Is there enough you could do for, to, for them? 
Uh, or does the United States need to reconsider its policy, as some people have begun to suggest, and say, look, the lesser of the evils is Assad. Maybe we need to work with him and the moderate opposition together against the extremists to defeat them. Is it your sense that this conversation uh, either is going on or needs to go on in Washington? Well, it certainly needs to go on, and elements of it are underway right now. Uh, but once the president dug himself in by saying that Assad had to go, your third option of working with Assad to defeat the extremists seems like a hard place for them uh, to be. And there's, let's say, not a whole lot of trust right there if uh, they were going to work together anyway. Uh, I think there are sort of two or three interesting elements to what hasn't happened in the U.S. policy toward, um, toward Syria. Um, the first is that when the president came out and said Assad had to go, there wasn't an, a plan ready to be implemented to make sure he got out. And that's a difficult place to be. Um, General Clapper, who's the director of national intelligence, was giving uh, testimony today uh, at the... Um, the House Intelligence Committee. This is the annual uh, threat assessment testimony they give. And um, you know, every once in a while, when you listen to this testimony, and if you read all of these transcripts or tune into them, which fortunately we do so you don't have to, as they say, um, uh, you hear sort of a clarion truth come out. And one came out today when he said that Assad is actually stronger today after the United States struck the deal to get rid of the chemical weapons and took some of the pressure off Assad than he was prior to that happening. And that entire experience, I think, was a pretty searing one for the president. So he walked all the way up through the summer to the conclusion that Syria had used chemical weapons after the US had sort of denied this or ignored the evidence for some number of months, um, despite some newspaper articles that published, uh, that we published and others published that strongly suggested that Assad was using his chemical weapons, then said that he had decided to strike them, then said that he had decided he needed congressional approval, and then discovered there was no such approval coming. So they reached a deal, thanks to the Russians, to get those chemical weapons out. A very small number have made their way out so far. And this seems to have taken enough pressure off of Assad because Assad came to the correct conclusion that the one thing he could do that could bring a Western strike was to use chemical weapons, but that if he killed 130,000 people the traditional way, uh, that it likely wouldn't bring about a US strike. So I'm not sure in the end that the administration ended up sending the right message. Today, the U.S. envoy to Syria announced his retirement. Uh, we've got John Kerry telling members of the Senate that this all is being reconsidered and there's a recognition that we don't have a policy that's working. But nobody that I can find in the administration seems to think that that moderate element can be strengthened to the point that they actually could be a moving force in this. So let me flip this one back. If you were back in your old policy planning job today, uh, what would you tell the, the president was his best approach? Uh, <clears throat> well, I would have argued many things along the way, which hopefully would have precluded us from arriving where we are. But that said, we are where we are where we are. You, uh, so beginning from where we are, which, by the way, is a terrible position. Yeah. Often in the game, uh, in this business, you end up with uh, 
a choice between or among terrible options. Syria is, is just that. I, I don't much like drift, the current policy. Um, it's not just on a humanitarian basis, but on a strategic basis. Uh, Iraq now has become, as David well knows, the second most violent country in the Middle East. Roughly now, close to 1,000 people are dying every month in Iraq. And the border between Syria and Iraq has essentially lost its meaning. And you're beginning to see the spread of this, this conflict. You've got millions of refugees in, you know, in the, overwhelming some of the neighboring countries. Uh, this is extremely bad from lots of uh, levels. Uh, lots of directions, and it's reinforcing doubts in the region about the United States and Saudi Arabia and other places. So you're, you're beginning to see uh, a Middle East of now decentralized decision-making, which to me is not necessarily reassuring. Uh, I tend to agree with the assessment, though I know Senator McCain and others disagree, that we have a viable option of arming up the quote-unquote moderate opposition. Uh, that argument, that, uh, that option may have existed a year ago, and indeed I favored it. Uh, I as think, did Hillary Clinton, as did David Petraeus. Yeah. Uh, I think that day has probably come and gone. And to resurrect it would be very, very tough. It's, it's worth a, it'd be worth an intelligence assessment about whether it could be resurrected. I'm skeptical at this point. The idea of a radical takeover, or more likely, I think what drift would lead to, if that's your assessment, that arming them wouldn't do much good, is that you have parts of the country controlled by Bashar al-Assad and parts of the country increasingly controlled by these extremist groups who would be a threat not just to Syria, but conceivably to us. Uh, this is now, I mean, Al-Qaeda and Al-Qaeda-like groups now control more real estate than they ever have in their history. Uh, not a, a widely known fact, but it has the virtue or the tragedy of, of being true. So yeah, I would begin to unthink the unthink. I would begin to think the unthinkable. And the question would be, uh, strategically, do we need to think about some type of uh, a willingness to relieve some of the pressure on the regime uh, in the short run and to work with them to build the moderate opposition, to take the regime pressure off the moderate opposition in order to build that up, build up the moderate opposition, put less pressure on the regime so then you could put more pressure against the uh, extremists. I would look at that uh, option. I still would want, and I think this is where the Russians get very interesting. Uh, I'm, I, I have no illusions about the difficulties of working with Mr. Putin. Uh, but I do think the Russians have an interest in seeing this war not continue. And the reason is the biggest vulnerability to Mr. Putin beyond his own overreach and corruption and all that is separatism and terrorism within Russia. And that is the, the if you will, Achilles heel or underbelly of modern day Russia and the Chechnyas and other such places. And the potential for what is going on in Syria to feed that is real. So the idea that Russia might also be interested in a way of ultimately ending this conflict, which could involve, though not immediately, as John Kerry tried to do, and not as a precondition, but as a medium, a long-term result, some type of regime evolution in Damascus, I think, is, uh, is possible. But it would mean the administration would have to swallow a very bitter pill of uh, alleviating some of the pressure against the uh, what is truly an unsavory regime that's committed all sorts of war crimes. Well, you know, Richard, in, um, I agree with, with that, and particularly with what you said about Russia. I, I said before what to look for in the Iran agreement, so I'll tell you now what, I, what I'm looking for as a reporter in, on Syria. And you alluded to it when you referred to the al-Qaeda uh, spread in that border region between Syria and Iraq. Um, 
one of the things we've learned about President Obama is that much more so, I think, than President Bush, he is driven by acting only when he is persuaded of a very strong national interest for the United States. And so in Syria, he saw a great humanitarian tragedy, and Samantha Power and Susan Rice, both of whom remember well the, uh, the whole um, Clinton administration experience with Rwanda, I think wanted to act more strongly in Syria to avoid repeating a Rwanda kind of, of scenario. But for the president, it's all about national interest. And now he's beginning to see that interest develop as al-Qaeda forces affiliates take a bigger role in this border area. And from there, could use it as, an, as a training ground to strike out against the US, aircraft, whatever. Not a major strike, probably of the 9-11 uh, nature, but, but could, uh, could do significant damage. And so the silences that you hear when you talk to people in the administration, and particularly in the intel community, is what would it take for the United States to decide to act in that region? with drones, with special forces, whatever, to, to view it the way they view those areas of Pakistan that were that's al the way, That's exactly the way I view it. It wouldn't be essentially for us to become a protagonist in serious civil war. I think that would be a fool's errand. But I do think to carry out a, a counterterrorism uh, type effort, yeah, I would and actually, uh, I would see that as fairly hostile territory. Can we go to one more question in the Middle sure. East? Let's, the last one I wanted to raise in that part of the world was the Arab-Israeli the Arab or Israeli-Palestinian uh, embroglio. So let me ask you a two-part question. It's a loaded question. I wouldn't expect any other kind. That's good. Uh, do you think Mr. Kerry's prospects of actually getting not just a framework agreement, but a framework agreement that would lead to an actual peace agreement are more than negligible? And if they were, and if he, if he in fact succeeded, do you think that would have positive uh, consequences beyond Israelis and Palestinians? It's another way of asking. For many years, people argued that if you could only solve the Israeli Arab or Israeli-Palestinian issue, that would set in motion much, right, much wider regional positive results. It was in some ways the key to the region. And the real question is, given what's going on in Egypt, what's going on in Syria, Iraq, and elsewhere, whether that was ever true, is it true now? I don't know if it was ever true, but I certainly don't think it's, it's true today. Uh, there are reasons to go work hard on an Israeli-Palestinian accord because it has been a major project of uh, the uh, US administrations back to Harry Truman's day. But, and I think it's worth investing time even if you think that the result, the chances of success are negligible or only slightly better than negligible. And we've had framework agreements before, and those framework agreements have not been filled out. But there's no harm in trying. And I think in many cases, people around the world, and particularly Americans, want to see an American administration at least make a serious effort at this. Because I think they recognize that without American leadership, there is nothing that's going to happen. That said, the old argument that peace within the region starts with the Israelis and the Palestinians, if it was ever true, I think certainly is not today. They could reach an agreement, and I don't think it would make the slightest bit of difference in the Iranian calculus about whether to go for a nuclear weapon or agree to dismantle part of their infrastructure. 
I don't think the generals in Egypt watching people out on the streets and the Muslim Brotherhood would let an Israeli-Palestinian agreement have a big factor in their decisions. I don't think in the Syrian war it's going to figure into Assad's calculus for anything. So it's worth doing on its own merits, but to argue that success here is critical for success in everything else, I think is a stretch. For the record, I agree. It's a, it's a politically incorrect thought, but I think the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is terribly important to Israelis and Palestinians, but it's largely become a local conflict. And it's much less of a, a regional conflict. And that's a big idea, ultimately, to get incorporated into American foreign policy. OK, enough fun with the Middle East. Uh, let's, uh, let's pivot, shall we say, to, uh, to Asia. Uh, Secretary of State's going to be going out to Asia before to uh, long Secretary of Defense. As, president's uh, going in April. President's going in uh, April. Here it is. It's 2014, February. We're coming up in this summer on the 100th anniversary of the outbreak of the First World War. The Guns of August, as Barbara Tuckman uh, characterized it. A lot of people are writing about, if you will, the, the guns of February, March, whatever, that China and Japan are increasingly not just disputing territory, but are disputing the past. Nationalism's gaining um, momentum. They barely talk to each other. They shout at each other uh, a lot. To what extent do we need to start thinking the possibility of instability or even uh, violence, conflict in a part of the world that now, what, for three decades has known not just peace, but phenomenal economic growth. That essentially, are we seeing the end of what some of my friends call economic Asia and the rise of political military Asia? Well, if we were, Richard, it would be a completely, um, ch a complete change in the way we have thought about what could cause um, the outbreak of violence in the region. Because until now, the main threat to stability has been North Korea. The idea that it would strike out in some way, even suicidally, as the, as the regime collapsed. Today, I think that the possibility of uh, that kind of trouble, while it remains uh, about where it was, probably pales compared to the possibility of an accidental outbreak or near accidental outbreak in disputes uh, between the Japanese and the Chinese over uh, the East China Sea and the Chinese and other neighbors in the South China Sea. I was a Tokyo correspondent and the bureau chief uh, for six years in the late 80s and early 90s, and none of these disputes are new. They've all been there before. What's different is China's perception of its own power and the Japanese perception of their, their uh, waning power. Back in those days, you would periodically have uh, Chinese fishermen or other ships go up into these islands, uh, land on them, or get in some conflict with the Japanese forces. Usually somebody in one of the ships was inebriated. Um, usually the Japanese would arrest them, dry them out, and some 25-year-old consular officer would call some other 25-year-old consular officer, and they would swap the people, and the whole thing would go away, and it would never make the front pages. Today, every one of these conflicts gets escalated into the question of, 
is anybody going to commit more force there? And what worries me is it has prompted the nationalistic instincts in both Japan and in China. And so it's going to be very difficult domestically for Prime Minister Abe to back down. And it's going to be very difficult domestically for Xi Jinping in his first full year as uh, the president uh, in China and at a time that he is trying to exercise more control than his predecessor had over the People's Liberation Army and the other military units to back down as well. So I think the chances of an outbreak are higher, and I think that probably means that big elements of the pivot, including a greater American naval presence in the region, probably overdue. And they're probably going to wish that they had done that a lot faster than they did. I tend to agree. Uh, let's talk a little bit about um, one of the big, I've just come back from Germany. And if you go into any meeting in Berlin, uh, the biggest subject for the last few months has been NSA, which is known there as no spying on allies. And, uh, and the we wouldn't think of it, I'm sure. Yeah. Yes. Well, that's what I wanted to talk about. But as you all know, the United States uh, has been conducting various kinds of surveillance, both targeted surveillance on certain leaders, including the chancellor, of uh, Germany, as well as more general surveillance of, uh, pop of the population there, uh, and all that. So you're a reporter, so I wanted to ask you a question, uh, which I can't get a clear answer to. Is it your sense that NSA was doing all these things simply because it could? Or is it your sense that someone told them they could? Um I'm not sure which is worse, but I'd be curious your view on which would be worse. Um, there are two or three different categories of what the NSA was doing, and I think the answer for them may be slightly different in each. Okay. So the National Security Agency is one of the largest intelligence agencies we have. They're the folks who do almost all electronic surveillance. They're code breakers, and increasingly... They are cyber warriors. They are the, the key to America's newest arsenal, which is the cyber arsenal. Think to the Olympic Games uh, program against Iran, which was the, um, the program to try to destabilize Iran's nuclear uh, centrifuges using the first state-directed use of cyber weapons. That was all based inside the NSA. And so they've got multiple missions. And to understand the question of, are we doing this because we, the government authorized it, or are we doing this because we can, depends on which mission it is. So on the national leaders, the eavesdropping on Angela Merkel's cell phone calls back, uh, back in, in Germany, and this was her personal uh, cell phone, uh, we're told. So they picked up every exciting conversation between her and her husband raised the question that we've asked in Washington, which was, if you're going to go to all this effort, could you at least do it against the French because the conversations will be a lot more interesting. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, in that case, the capability built up, we believe that scores, if not hundreds, of national leaders and then sub-leaders were listened to. And from everything we've been able to tell from the reviews that have been done at the White House, these never got a 
thorough vetting in either the Bush administration or the Obama administration because they weren't first or second order threats. The threats that get reviewed in, at the White House level are terrorism, nuclear proliferation, you know, the things that really can come back and bite you. But if the NSA is routinely listening in on the chief of staff to the Mexican president, that doesn't necessarily come up for a review at White House level. And I think the president was a little bit shocked to discover either the extent of this or the risk, more likely, that it would become public. And nobody did the calculus that you really have to do with these kinds of programs and that the CIA does with covert programs every year, which is let's look at the amount of intelligence we're gathering, then let's imagine that we're reading about this program on the front page of the New York Times or the Washington Post some morning. Is the value of the intel you're getting greater than the damage you do to your relationship once it becomes public? And since the NSA never really had leaks before, that, that was the realm of the CIA where everything leaked um, over time, I don't think they ever really did that measure. So that's one category. On the domestic surveillance, there, the NSA clearly had a program that was being um, pro overseen probably more rigorously than any program I can imagine. They reported regularly to the intelligence heads in Congress. It was reviewed regularly at the White House at very senior levels. The president knew about it. And this was what was author authorized under the Patriot Act and what followed. And so there, the NSA argument is we're simply doing what we were told to do. Their mistake, to my mind, is when you're collecting the telephone numbers of everyone in this room, right, even if you're not looking at what those numbers are, you need some democratic buy-in on the fact that you're going off to do this. And I think in the days after 9-11, they probably would have gotten that had they announced the program and said, we're, we're going to have to have these all sitting in a database. They decided in the end, because they're an intelligence agency and they think of secrecy first, that they weren't going to go do that. We could go on on any of these three sets of subjects, the Middle East, Asia, or NSA. We could add to it climate change, uh, or international economic issues, or energy, or Latin America, or Africa, or South Asia, but we're not going to do it. <laughs> not because we're afraid to do it, uh, but because we want to take some questions from you all. So uh, if you, there's two mics, one over there and one over here. If you would like to ask a question, go to the microphone, tell us your name, and please make it a question, and please make it succinct. And uh, over to you, sir. Uh, Seymour Cohen, uh, thank you for a very informative discussion. Uh, you've described an administration with a disastrous foreign policy, and I'd like to go to another uh, side of it. What's the perception of the United States around the world in view of the fact that we don't allow South Korea to enrich? They're our friend. We don't tell the Saudis anything. They're our friend. We worry more about a Jew building a house in Jerusalem than the Iranians building a nuke. Why should you be America's friend in this world? Well, you know, Richard just came back from uh, Germany, so I want to ask him to answer this first. I was there about a month and a half or two months ago. Um, you couldn't find a country that was more closely allied with the United States than Germany during this time, and you worked on the reunification issues. Tell us whether or not you think this is lasting damage, or to this question, 
or tell us whether or not you think this is one of those temporary things that one goes through, and then I'll, I'll give you my answer to that after. I actually think there is lasting damage in Germany and beyond, and I'm, I hope I'm wrong, because if I'm right, the consequences of it are potentially severe. In Germany, look, let's take a second for the context. It's now 25 years after the wall came down. Uh, it was 11-9 of all days, uh, 1989, that the Berlin Wall first began to get dismantled. So anybody under the age of roughly 45 was a teenager, was not politically aware then, which is another way of saying a big chunk of the German population doesn't see the United States as the country that basically was the steward of 40 years of Cold War, that doesn't see the United States as the country that introduced democracy to Germany, but instead sees the United States more as a country which went off to war in uh, Iraq or now has done things uh, that, given German history, you can imagine, given uh, uh, the overreach of the state, are wildly controversial. So I actually do think in Germany this will have a lasting impression. And it's, to me, fascinating that, what's it today? Today's Tuesday? I think it was Friday, unless I got my days wrong, uh, in Munich at the annual security conference. The president of Germany gave a speech, which I welcome for the most part. It talked about Germany finally playing a larger role in the world, commensurate with its capabilities and obligations. But it's not clear to me it was a coincidence that it happened now. Uh, that it happened in the aftermath of uh, the NSA. And that takes me to the second half of my, my answer, that it also happened in the aftermath this summer of what the president is balking at doing anything in Syria, where he had essentially totally, totally rolled the stone up the hill. Everyone expected him to act, and then at the last minute he balked at, at acting, even though he himself said he had the authority to act against uh, Syria. And then you add to that the uncertainty about American domestic politics, everything from the government shutdown to the, the sequester, the near default on the, uh, the debt. And I think what there is going on around the world is a reassessment of the United States about the degree of uh, predictability and reliability we any, we any longer offer to the world. And what is happening, I believe, is a lot of people are reassessing their security portfolios and are becoming somewhat less reliant uh, on, the, uh, on the United States. We're seeing it in Asia with Japan and South Korea. Uh, we're seeing it in Saudi Arabia and elsewhere in the Middle East. I actually think we're beginning to see it in, in Europe. Uh, I feel in some ways the tectonic plates of history are beginning to move with slightly greater uh, velocity than we have seen for, for, for some time. And I think there's many reasons that uh, explain it from what we've done and more important haven't done in foreign policy to some of our disarray and dysfunctionality domestically in the political sense, but I actually do think it's serious. Um, I agree that it's serious, and I think that there's an additional element that the Snowden revelations have brought in. Most spy scandals have had some brief but definable diplomatic impact. And then people go back to working with the United States because, as Bob Gates points out in his, uh, in his memoir, and as he said after the WikiLeaks revelations, um, at some point, they come to the conclusion the U.S. is the biggest economic power, the biggest military power. They've got to deal with them even if they don't want to, and they go back and they do it. In the Snowden case and the revelations we've seen about the NSA, 
I would argue that in addition to all of the diplomatic impact it's had, it's probably going to have a larger economic impact. And here's why I say that. First, it has started a huge friction between the biggest powers in Silicon Valley and the intelligence community, which previously worked together, but now you've got people in Silicon Valley saying, how can we sell our cloud services, anything else in Europe, in Asia, if everybody believes there's a back door for the NSA built into our products? And that's a huge problem that's not going to go away anytime soon. And in fact, when you look at this material, and I've spent most of the past six or eight months looking at it, there are back doors that have been built in. And some of the most interesting recommendations of the president's advisory panel were close those back doors, stop using cyber weapons uh, or collecting the material to use the cyber weapons so that you can reestablish that trust. But then there's another level, which is that as you travel through Europe and Asia now, you begin to hear people talking about walling off the internet for all the wrong reasons. The Chinese and the Russians want to do it for national control. There are many in Germany, many in Brazil, who talk about having a German-only or Brazilian-only internet element, and they want to do this largely for protectionist reasons, but they make the NSA their excuse. And so it would be the ultimate irony if the one innovation that really was sewing the world together in the internet ended up, because of these events, getting balkanized. Yeah, I, I think David's spot on. I think the chance of a more both fragmented internet and one on which government insertion or, or, or assertion of authority begins to grow are, are likely. And I think it's a question of how much. Sir. I am Jim Pesenich. I'm a docent here. Uh, Mr. Haas, you, you mentioned this Teutonic shift away from trust as the United States, as, as the world power. When do we cease to be the policemen of the world? And, and tying into that, in 2009, if you two had the power, how differently would you have approached the issues in Syria? Well, the idea of policemen is never a metaphor I much like. You know, policemen in a society have a a monopoly on the legitimate use of force, and they tend to have preponderant force. That is not true of the, it never has been, of the international uh, arena. I would simply say that the United States is by far still the most capable country in the world. It's one with the greatest habits and experience of acting. And I would simply say, and I've been a critic at times of uh, American overreach in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, but there is a danger of underreach. And a world in which the United States is not willing to play a large role will not be a safer or a more orderly world. It'll be a messier world. There's nobody else out there who's willing and able to play that kind of a role. And to me, one of the biggest dangers then of a world in which uh, increasingly decision-making is decentralized in which the United States, for various reasons, uh, is less willing to act with a, a degree of assertiveness, is likely to become a much messier uh, world. It's, it's not going to regulate itself. There's no invisible hand out there. There's no geopolitical marketplace with Adam Smith's invisible hand. And there's no other visible hands. The Chinese, the Japanese, the Indians, the Brazilians, you name it. They're unwilling or unable or both to play a significant uh, role. So uh, in the absence of American leadership, uh, 
I really do think the, the general trends, the arrows, if you will, uh, will be, um, will be in, the, in the direction of greater disorder. Do you, you want to take yeah, the serious? Um, there is a pendulum swing element to this. And in Confront and Conceal, I argued that in the first term, the Obama administration, I think, did a pretty good job of getting the balance right when, it, when the president basically said, look, the days are over when we send 100 or 150,000 troops to a country for six or seven years, discover in the end that we can't change their nature, that we can't rewire their societies, and that, what do you know, lo and behold, they resent our presence after a while. Okay? So he moved to a light footprint strategy. And the light footprint strategy was a strategy of using uh, drones, special forces, and cyber inexpensive ways of trying to go in and affect events briefly to defend American interests. So you saw the drones in Pakistan and Yemen, you saw the cyber in Iran, and you saw the special forces against bin Laden, but in many other places as well, against pirate, piracy uh, off Somalia and, and so forth. That strategy worked pretty well for three or four years. But eventually, it runs out of gas because it doesn't establish a presence on the ground that people can count on. It doesn't send kids to school in uh, Afghanistan. It may wipe out a den of terrorists in Pakistan, but doesn't keep them from moving to that region that we discussed between Syria and Iraq. And so now I think the president is stuck between a policy that can't really give you long-term influence and an American political sensibility in both the Democratic and Republican uh, hierarchies that says the age of America going off to go do these alone is over. So the president's demanded that others step in. He wouldn't act in Libya until NATO did as well. That's fine, but in Syria, you finally hit the case where no one else was willing to come in. And so we sat back. Actually, I'll give a slightly different answer, though I don't disagree with that which is, uh, before you say somebody must go, before you make regime change to the declared policy of the United States, you had better be prepared to do two things. One is to see it through. Do what it takes then to, to oust the king. And second of all, be prepared to do what it takes to put something better in the king's place. In Libya, we were, will we were willing to participate in the former, but not the latter. And it's one of the reasons that Libya now is, in some ways, the mess it is. In Syria, we were prepared to do neither. Now, I'm not saying we should have been prepared to do it, but I would say unless you're prepared to do both, and that's a tall order, as we learned in Iraq and Afghanistan, that is, shall we say, ambitious foreign policy. And I would argue in very few instances isn't warranted. Then I would say we ought to think twice before we say somebody must go. That cannot be the default option of American foreign policy. Uh, Sandy Needham. The, uh uh, following really on the regime change uh, point, in the days before the Second War, failed leaders were allowed to go and live in Kashkaish and sit in the sun and uh, get out of the way. These days, uh, we don't seem to have any uh, policy for allowing them to exit elegantly or even alive, and so they behave as cornered animals would. Should we be doing more to uh, get them out quickly? Well, we've actually tried. I mean, look. You can come up with a latter-day Elba. You can, you, know, you can build a special Four Seasons. Uh, with a Swiss bank in the lobby. 
<laughs> and actually, that was tried at times with Assad. Uh, but again, it seems to me leaders only avail themselves, shall we say, of that opportunity if they're persuaded it is the, the, the less bad of their options. But if they believe they have other options, they will avail themselves of that. Most, in my experience, very few leaders want to give up power, and very few leaders trust those uh, arrangements. So in the case of Assad, he, he was not persuaded that was his least bad option. But I think the exile, the Elba option, it's part of the arsenal. And there's, you know, there can be dashes or, you know, after the Olympics in Sochi, you know, I'm sure there'll be some... Uh, some, some, some real estate that's available uh, for, for exiled leaders, but you've got to create a uh, calculus on the part of the uh, leader that, uh, that, that, he, that he is you know, wiser to, to avail himself of that option than he is to stay and fight. You also have to think a little bit about when you get ready to oust a leader, what the message is you're sending to the next set of leaders you may be concerned about. And here, Libya, again, is a very good example. So Gaddafi, in 2003, soon after um, the uh, Iraq invasion, and no doubt responding to the fact that you had just left the State Department, uh, called up and said, I really am gonna, I'm ready to give up my nuclear weapons infrastructure. Well, what he gave up wasn't much of an infrastructure. It was all still sitting in the boxes that he got from Pakistan. But he gave but, it up. But he gave it up. And he wanted to re-enter world society. And you'll remember that many foreign leaders went to visit him. Uh, Tony Blair went to visit him. Condoleezza Rice went to visit him. He spoke at the Council on Foreign Relations. He, you know, there, there was no end he was not willing to go to. Right? Uh, <laughs> so... Um, what happens? He gets in trouble at home, and as soon as that begins, the United States joins a group to drive him from power and does it successfully. Well, that's fine. He wasn't the nicest uh, guy on the international scene. But the Iranians and the North Koreans were taking notes. He said, okay, gave up his nuclear program. Public turned against him. Americans came in and finished him off. Lesson number one, think twice about giving up your nuclear program, because we might not have gone after him with quite that enthusiasm had we thought he still had any kind of potential nuclear capability. So these are pretty complex decisions. And as I've gone back in the record on the Libya decision-making, I haven't found that the effects on Iran or North Korea even came up in the discussion. Uh, yes, ma'am. Um, do you think that... You have to introduce yourself. Uh, my name is Reba Shemansky. Do you feel that the chances of a terrorist attack in this Olympics at Sochi are greater now than they were in previous uh, recent Olympics? Because all Olympics are, have the potential for terror. After we, we all remember Munich. Uh, all Olympics have the potential for terror. This one particularly does because of the closeness to the Chechen conflict. If... There is an attack, uh, and we all hope very much that there is not. I think the bigger risk may be outside the Olympic Village than inside, right. because it's so easy outside to you know, do something fairly quickly. I agree 100%, and I think uh, soft targets are vulnerable, and the desire to humiliate Mr. Putin is uh, high, to say the least. So I think he's vulnerable twice over with these Olympics. One is the corruption 
issue, and second of all is his inability to, uh, to guarantee security in the wider space. His third vulnerability may be the lack of snow, but... Uh, well, we can help him with that, yeah. Uh, <laughs> there we go, so we can export it, there yeah. we go. Well, Richard Haas, David Sanger, thank you so much.